Can your business survive a recession? Find out when we take the recession-proof business test on today's episode. Today's episode is brought to you by ConvertKit. Your email list is your greatest asset. Put your business in the only hands that I trust at servermaster.com front slash ConvertKit. Are you tired of dealing with your boss? Do you feel underpaid and underappreciated? If you want to make it online, fire your boss and start living your retirement dreams now. Then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Serve No Master Podcast, where you'll learn how to open new revenue streams and make money while you sleep. Presented live from a tropical island in the South Pacific by best-selling author, Jonathan Green. Now, here's your host. I'm in the garden. My dog is sitting next to me. One of my neighbors is hammering. I don't know why he started, but the moment I came outside, he fired up the old hammer. It's far away, so hopefully we could block most of the noise, but this is island life. There's birds singing. There's not too much wind, so it felt like a great time to slide outside in between rainstorms. What we want to talk about today is something really, really important. Now, why am I talking about a recession-proof business test? Well, it depends on when you listen to this episode, you might be in the middle of a recession. More importantly is that economic systems and markets and real estate are cyclical. We always hear about a bull and a bear market. That's why there's those statues in front of the stock exchange. We hear about shrinking and growing markets and business cycles. And what that means is that economies grow and shrink. Now, over time, the trend is almost always towards growth. Economies get bigger and bigger and bigger, but they have up and down. It's not a straight upward line. And crises happen about every 10 years. And if you look, 2008, all those sketchy loans, people were given loans that shouldn't have been given loans on homes because they weren't in a financial position to pay off those mortgages. And eventually they couldn't keep up with those mortgages and people started losing their homes. And those mortgages, they're people who originally gave them, sold them on to someone else in bundles. And they didn't realize they'd bought a bunch of mortgages that been massively overvalued and the economy shrank and many people lost their jobs. And I remember when that happened. What's interesting is that very common response to an economic downward cycle is for people actually go into the real estate in- industry. A lot of people I knew who lost their jobs during these cycles jumped into real estate because it was something they could do. It's an easy industry to jump into. In some states, the training only takes a couple of weeks and others, it can take a couple of years. But either way, the advantage is you're kind of in charge of your own destiny. And even if you have a low volume of deals, you tend to make a lot of money because you make three to 6%. If you get, if you organize both sides of a deal, you do 6%. If you sell a single house for $100,000, you get $6,000. The bank pays you a meal. You don't have to wait and get a percentage of every mortgage payment. So you get $6,000 right away. You know, that's a pretty good salary. You make one deal a month. You're pretty solid. So a lot of people jump into that totally reasonable. The problem is that 50% of people quit the first year and 50% of those who stay quit the second year. Because it's hard. It's very, very hard for anyone below the top 10% of that industry. And I talk about a great deal about that in my book on real estate with Dave Bros, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. But I don't want to go too far down that path. Real estate's fascinating. That's why I partnered with him on that book. But now their second cycle, right in 2020, a virus that's just an extreme flu. We're still figuring out how dangerous it is right now. But it's a variant of something that's been released before. That's why its name is COVID-19, not COVID-1. And almost half of the planet right now is under lockdown orders, so the economy is shrinking. I get approached all the time. I actually get messages almost every day. Jonathan, why don't you do an episode on the pandemic and the virus? And I don't want to do that. There's enough noise about that. What I want to focus on is how to endure, survive, or thrive this crisis and the next one. I absolutely believe that I will endure more recessions and economic downturns in my career. This won't be the last one. It's not the first one. A lot of people are very scared right now, and I don't want to build on top of that fear. What I'm trying to do, and you'll notice, is that during this time, I'm practicing as much extreme giving as I can. I'm continually giving away things, courses, products, training, 
The majority of my time right now is focused on creating podcast episodes. I'm trying to record an entire year's worth of content. My goal, by the time you hear this, you'll know whether or not I achieved, is to get 52 episodes recorded so I can put everything in place so we have free content coming out every week. There's no obligation. There's no pitch in the middle. Yes, there's a commercial at the beginning of each episode, but that's it. There's not one stuck in the middle. It drives me crazy. If you know how, you can push that fast forward button, skip over the commercial. I hope you don't, but it's okay if you do. It is what it is. Other than that, these are pure, unadulterated, free content. Because I believe one of the ways that I can adapt is to give and give and give because that's what people read, need right now. And you need more hope, not more stress. I deal with that enough within my team with people who are really worried. People who are worried on my team are worried they're going to lose their jobs. And it's a reasonable fear because lots of people are around the world. But I don't want to bring fear into these episodes, and especially because then that will date the episode when you listen to it down the line, if you listen to a back catalog episode. So knowing that downturns happen means we can prepare for them. What we can do is design bulwarks within our business to survive these types of economic pressure so we're ready for when they happen and we can adapt. Because adaptability is the most important feature in a business, and we're gonna dig into that as we go through the test. One thing I've learned is that people don't change. One of the first free gifts I put together and actually recently updated it, the ultimate swipe file, I found over 600 pages of ads that are over 100 years old. Some of the ads I found, like I found this baked bean ad from the 1880s and I found some ads from like 1902. They're really effective. They're amazing copy. What's interesting is that you can copy and paste 90% of the ad into a modern sales letter. You only have to change a little bit of the language because people talk slightly different now. But the things people worried about, the fears and the desires are exactly the same. People wanted to sound smarter, look better, live longer, make more money. Sound familiar? Some of the phrasing is a little bit different, right? People were worried about sounding dumb. Now that's not as much of a fear unless you look into a market and say, hey, you want to get a promotion, you want to go to a job interview, you need to sound smarter. You need to be able to answer all the questions, you need to know all the words. And then that's when we start to see that need. So even these things that aren't as big, we still have that desire. We want to be smarter. We want to know words. People, How many people have a word-a-day calendar where they want to learn a word every day? So we still have those same desires. The weight loss, the dating, the relationship desires are exactly the same in these old ads. And what I learned, and you can grab this at servedmaster.com, front slash ultimate. It's always free. I recently added some cool images and updated the content, the training at the beginning to explain to you how you can use this process to become a great copywriter. But even if you don't want to become a copywriter, it's worth looking at to see that people had the same hopes, fears, dreams 100 years ago. That's revolutionary for me when I saw that and learned that. It taught me something, and that is that there's a consistency over time. So even though markets grow and shrink, I believe that we can apply principles to our businesses now that can make them recession-proof, that can take advantage of the consistency of human nature. What we want doesn't change. What can change is our priority tree. What this means is that the thought taking it the majority of time in your mind changes based on external conditions. For example, you're thinking about going to the grocery store, you have a list in your head. And you go, oh, I gotta go to the grocery store, I gotta buy these things. When you go to the movies, you'll stop thinking about that list. It becomes a lower priority. When you walk out, the list moves back to the front of your mind. Stronger example, you're going through a brutal divorce. It stinks. Worst thing that can happen to you. Until you smell smoke in your house, suddenly you're thinking about that fire, that becomes a higher priority. So in times of economic turmoil, recession, or things pulling back, people go from buying... Uh, from spending about what they want to spending what they need. They start to switch into a survival mode. I start thinking about how many months of buffer do I have? How many, for how many months can I pay rent if no money comes in? That's what I'm thinking about. Instead of thinking about growth, which I was thinking about before this time, I'm thinking about, oh no, I need more buffer. 
if the if things stay the same, I was really happy with my buffer because I have about three months. I can pay rent. I can pay all my bills and pay my entire team for three months with no problems if nothing comes in. It's pretty good. Wasn't always in that situation, especially with how big my team is right now. And I'm focused on extending that. Now I go, oh, I want to make it six months or nine months just in case this thing keeps going. I really don't want to have to let anyone go. That's my number one concern. Take care of my family, of course, but we're in a good situation. Next, it's I got to support this team. They depend on me. So I know that most of the market is having similar thought shifts. A lot of people are losing their jobs. A lot of people just found out that they might not make any money for three months, six months, or nine months. And they're depending upon external sources to sort them out. And it's a really scary place to be. It's not always like this. I would have never known. And I've talked about downward cycles before. I couldn't have predicted this. This is called a black swan event. The point of a black swan is that you can't predict it. People always interview the guy who wrote Black Swan. I'll put a link to the book below in the show notes as well. When there was the economic downturn in 2008, they brought him all his TV shows. Go, wow, you predicted this. He goes, no, I didn't. I didn't predict this specific event. I predicted that bad things happen. And he teaches to build a strategy where you know that bad things are happening, that things you can't predict will happen. And he mostly talks about investing. And what he talks about is you invest like 90% in consistent things and 10% in moonshots that will explode if something bad goes wrong. It's more complicated. I'm not really good at explaining investment because that's not really my area of expertise. But that's the core concept is that you build a strategy that is recession proof or able to adapt to economic downturns or to surprises, which he calls black swans, because no one knew black swans existed. Everyone thought all swans were white until the first ship from England discovered Australia, where the people who were already living there already knew about black swans. So I want to take you through the tests. There are six specific tests that I use to determine if a business is recession proof. Now, the core idea here is that the business is able to adapt. And each of these tests a business's ability to adapt to change. If your business can't adapt, then a surprise can crush it. Now, the first of these tests is, is there a massive time investment required to build or grow this business model? Is it slow moving? An example of this would be building a blog using the traditional method where you're generating organic traffic and you're just putting out content, three, five articles a week, and it can take one to two years before you start to make revenue. Very slow. That's very time consuming. If you build a blog in a space that's doing really well, and then there's a shift in the market, and that particular category of interest disappears, it goes away, then it can take you two years to pivot into a new thing. That's the danger. Now, blogging is not the perfect example. Obviously, there are ways to diversify your blogging, but the core idea that it takes time, the longer it takes, the more your business is like a train, the more danger you're in. This is something that I work against in my business all the time. It's very easy for me when I find something that works to just lean into that and only do that. Over the past few weeks, we've run about four different experiments for generating traffic and finding new customers. And each of them had some rocky points. I'll be honest with you. They were all rocky. And everyone on my team, because I'm the leader, right? They come to me and they say, okay, this thing didn't work. Here's what went wrong. One, two, three, four, five. And they look at me and they're waiting for me to go for the explosion, right? Because as a leader, and this is something I've had to learn, the team takes their cues from me. And it's very easy for me to go, this failed, what a disaster. Because at the end of the day, Every penny that goes in these failed experiments comes out of my pockets. So I could focus on that and be like, oh, look at all the wasted time, look at all the effort. I say, okay, let's decompress, let's break through this, study every part of this process and see what went wrong. What can we do to do this again? Every one of these experiments we're going to repeat. I go, you know what, let's do it better next time. We can do this better next time. I see this as purchasing data. And that's a hard mindset to get to, but that's important because that's what gives me my agility. Certain parts of my business have maxed out. They're not scalable anymore because 
we can only do certain types of things or find certain types of partners or create certain types of events or generate certain types of traffic. Think for things we do have a scalability limit. My friend experiences this. He's really good at Bing ads, but Bing has a finite amount of traffic. So once he maxes out, that's it. So that's a scalability problem. And that can become a problem if something is slow moving. If you turn into a dinosaur, this is something that I deal with more and more because my team is big. Now we're not as agile. When I decide to do something, it can take two to four weeks for the pieces to fall in place through my team. When it was just me, I was a one-man band. I was more agile. So I'm experiencing this now, and I'm constantly putting things in place to keep us agile, to make us able to grow in different areas quickly. So when you're looking at a business model, and this test is really for those of us who are looking for what we're going to do next. I put a lot of different business models in front of you guys. And different people jump on different ones. When you see my emails, or you talk, hear my recommendations, or see my reviews for different programs, I'm never recommending that you buy all of them. If you join my mastermind program, you don't get those emails because I don't want you distracted by other programs. Sure, you could buy them. I'd make more money. That's not what I want. I want you to succeed. So when you find the thing that's right for you, we do everything in our power to support you on that journey. But every person responds to different things. And so we put different offers and different programs. I tell you about them, but I want you to run each idea through this test. And the first test you should say is, well, will this take me a long time? Now, for everyone, that's a different scale. Some business models can take six months to spin up. And then once we've really mastered the process, we can replicate over two months. And some of the business models that I teach are exactly that way. It can take a little while the first time because it's a learning process, but then you can repeat and the cycle shortens. So when you're thinking about massive time required, look at the first time and the second time. And most of us are in our later years, however you want to measure that. I'm in my midlife, turning 40 this year. So the way I think about things is different than when I was 20. When I was 19, I didn't expect to live past 21. I lived fast. I had a lot of crazy adventures. My 20s were amazing. And now I'm telling dad jokes, living that dad life. I'm in a different phase in life. And it's just as exciting. It's just as big an adventure. Every time I have a new adventure with my kids or my kids learn something new or they discover a new type of movie they like. The first time my kids watched a Charlie Chaplin movie with me and they went nuts. That's another lesson I learned. Wow, things really don't change. Something that was funny in 1913 is still funny to my kids now. That's magical. And actually, I never really experienced Charlie Chapman when I was young. So we didn't really have that available. And now you can see things like that on Netflix or videos and YouTube. And my kids are learning things and we're learning them together. We have these amazing experiences. So I don't have five years to start a new business model like I did when I was younger. Like, yeah, you could start a business when you're 20 and go, hey, by the time I'm 25, I'll be a millionaire, but I'm living in my mom's basement for four years. We can't do that when we're 40, 50, 60, 70, can we? We got responsibilities. So we have to approach business in a different way. We need a shorter time cycle. The second test is, does it take a massive financial investment to start? I watch every single investment TV show I can find. I listen to every podcast about investing and pitching and all of those things, because I'm fascinated with that world. And what I find fascinating is when people build a business that will die unless someone gives them thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions of dollars. When I hear burn rates, they're crazy. It's such a gamble. And by the time the business is profitable, the person that started it only owns like 3% or 10% or 12%. These types of businesses that require massive financial investment, there's a couple of problems with them. The first is that in times of recession, your investors aren't going to throw more money in, right? They are also becoming more conservative with their finances. So if you rely on external funding to grow your business, then you're really going to be in trouble. The second danger is that you won't have your own funding, even if you are internal, to fund into growth or fund into maintenance, right? Your burn rate won't change. Your staff salaries are going to be the same, but what's coming in might shift. Additionally, when you want to pivot, it can require massive financial investment. An example of this is if you build apps and it costs you $50,000 to build each app, you can run into a problem 
let's say it takes you six or 12 months to build an app. You have an idea for an app, you spend $50,000 over a year, the app is about to launch, the market shifts. Because you had that long lead time, the res research and the results are different. And this long lead time applies to a lot of other things. It applies to books in a big way. Um, something I found really interesting, I know I'm going back to number one, you'll have to forgive me, is that when I was doing research um, for books, I was looking at Amazon categories a couple of years ago, and this one category was exploding. It's funny that I say that because the, the category was called bath bombs. And a bath bomb is basically, it's like bubbles, but it's a solid. And it's a ball, and you put it in, and it's called a bomb, and you drop it like a grenade. I've only seen it in books. I've never seen it in videos. And it was so hot. And there were 10 books that were trending hardcore. Six months later, nobody was buying books on how to make your own bath bombs. The category was completely dead. If you're not really stuck in to authorship like I am, you might not know that Amazon adds and deletes categories all the time. For a little while, there was a hot business category called business fashion. It would teach people how to dress for business. I said, oh, I could slide into that category. I created an outline, had an idea for a book. When I redid my research for recording my book, category had been erased, no longer existed. So even in small scale stuff, a long time between starting a project and bringing it to fruition is enough time for a market shift to happen. That's why we want a shorter cycle. And the same thing we want, shorter financial cycles so that we don't put massive investment in something. And certainly you can get to phases of scalability, but when a business requires massive financial investment to start or to pivot, that means you're very vulnerable during a time of recession. It's a very dangerous place to be. You might not have the resources to pivot. Suddenly those financial sources and those promises dry up and you can't pivot. The third sign that a business is not recession-proof is complexity. Complexity is really hard for me to explain because my business model is quite complicated. There are a lot of small moving parts, but complexity means that a lot of things have to go right for the business to stay running. An example of complexity or things having to stay right is if you have a business that relies, for example, on someone outside of your control. If your entire business model is built upon your Facebook page or Facebook group or Twitter thread, that has a complexity danger because there's a component outside of your control. So it can simply be there's parts of your business that you don't actually own, or it can be that there's a lot of moving parts. The more moving parts there are within your business, the more likely it is that something will go wrong. Things go wrong in my business all the time. Just yesterday, my team's internal messenger software, which we own, we don't license it, we own and it's on a server that we own, crashed. None of my team could talk to each other on our main channel. Fortunately, we have a backup communication system and everyone jumped to that, and it was really beautiful. I was really proud of the whole team for that. We got it fixed a few hours later, but our developer wasn't at home, so there's nothing he could do. We all work our own hours. We certainly can't expect that, but things like that happen. I've had my membership area crash. I've had my shopping cart crash. I've had my PayPal account frozen multiple times. Every single time I passed the review, one time I had to repass this identity review, and I was like, this account's 20 years old. I had the account since I was in college, since the 90s. And like, yeah, we want to just make sure we know who you are. And I'm like, I've sent in... And because I'm traveling, I didn't have my social security card with me who travels with that, okay? That's what they wanted, and that was the only thing they would accept, my social security card in a safety deposit box in Florida. And so my business was frozen for a while. So things can happen outside of our control. We have lots of layers of complexity. The more complicated the business model, the more likely it is that a wrench can get thrown into the works. As, as uh, Klaskow says, no plan survives contact with the enemy. I know, oh, sorry, Klauswitz, Prussian general. Everyone knows that quote. Most, no one's read the book because it's really long. And the one person I do know who read the book said, told me not to do it, he said it's really dry. But it's a military strategy book and it's really true. Another way to say it is business is a democracy, your customers get a vote. So the more things that rely, an example of this is every time there's a step in your process on your website, you'll have drop off. So if someone's on your homepage and you say, click this button to see what we'll give you if you give your email address, 
and then the next page, they go, yeah, I want to give you my email address. And then it's a pop-up. And then they fill that in. And then you get their email address. So it's like three steps. You'll lose a lot of people, a lot more people than you would have had if you just had a form where they could enter the email address and click now on the homepage. There's a lot of studies on this that says that the more steps in a process, the more people will drop off. So when you have a lot of complicated parts or a lot of complexity or those components in the business model that you don't quite understand, that's a sign that you're in danger, especially if you have problem number four, which is that you cannot endure competition. This could be true in small markets, and this could be true in really specialized niches that if a lot of people enter the market and you don't have enough of a uniqueness to outcompete them or that you end up relying on that. An example of this, I was watching an investment TV show recently and a girl had invented a pretty solar panel. That's all it was. It was a pretty solar panel you could stick in your window, but she didn't own any patents. You can't. Solar panels are pretty ubiquitous. She could have a design patent. Hey, look, this is a unique design, I guess. I don't even know if she was able to get that. She didn't, they didn't ask that question on this episode, but what she had was a commodity. It's like salt. Anyone can sell salt. Anyone can sell flour. That's what commodity means. It's something that anyone can sell. So if you're in a market where competition puts you in trouble, where if other people enter the market, you're in more and more trouble, that's a dangerous place to be. An example of this, as I told you earlier, is real estate agents. The more people become real estate agents, the less likely you are to get clients because only so many people are buying houses at any given time. And usually during a recession, less people are buying houses. So it's even worse. So this is an important test. And if you've ever had a business that got crushed by competition or that you found that competition was a real problem for you because it got too crowded in a space, something you found first, you're the pioneer and then people came behind you, start shooting back with arrows. Please let me know in the comments below because I want to make sure that I'm in an alignment with your experiences, that the things I'm talking about make sense to you. I want this to be clear that we've all seen what competition can do. What happens in a market is that it goes through fragmentation and consolidation. That's why there's only a few companies that make televisions. When's the last time you saw Zenith? Not around anymore. When's the last time you saw a microwave made in America? Same thing. Too much competition and then one person can grab the whole market and that's a dangerous place. And this is test number five, which is a zero-sum market. This means a market has entered a phase of saturation. An example of this market is bicycles. Anyone who wants a bicycle can get one. Every single person in the world who could potentially want a bicycle can own one. There's no need to educate people. Everyone knows they exist. Everyone can afford one. You might not be able to be able to afford the fanciest one, right? And you might carve out a part of that niche, like, oh, we do custom bicycles, or oh, we do bicycles that look like motorcycles. And I know those things exist. But as a whole, that's a market that's achieved saturation because everyone knows what they are. Everyone knows how they work. Everyone knows what they cost. Everyone knows all the features. There's nothing innovative. There's nothing new in bicycles. In the last 100 years, the last big innovation was two wheels that were the same size. Is it a big wheel, small wheel? That's it. So you have a market where the only way you can sell bicycles is if you can take if you take sales from someone else. That's a zero-sum market. The only way for you to generate sales is not by finding new customers, but by capturing customers for someone else. That's a level beyond cannot endure competition. Instead, you're in a place where it's already a knife fight. Now, you can possibly enter a market like this, but a lot of the ways this happened, this is a very hard business model. A lot of ways this can happen is by having razor thin margins, by having a large marketing budget, by having a lot of complexity, by having things that are more expensive components that give you um, your unique edge or unique selling point. And all of those things mean your business is built on something fragile because let's again talk about bicycles. I'm not about bicycles because I'm walking around my kids' bicycles are all over the garden this morning. So that's why it's on my mind is if you have, let's say you do Bicycles that are really fancy, like you have really cool custom bicycles. What happens in a, when the market goes downturn, people start going for simpler. Those things that make you unique no longer matter, right? My kids do not have expensive bicycles. We don't. I, we don't have expensive bicycles. I would never buy like a $1,000 bicycle or a $100 bicycle. 
Because kids' bicycles don't last very long. Now, I have a lot of children, and so bike goes from kid to kid to kid. But we still aren't buying like premium bicycles. And it's the same thing um, in an adult market, right? Is that you go from, oh, I want to buy like this bicycle for fun versus I need a bike to go to work. Those are two different mindsets. And I, when I lived in Japan, I had a bike to work every day. So I had a bike because I needed one for transport. So I've been in that school where I didn't have a car for a time. And so I biked to work, even in blizzards. I learned that snow burns when it hits your eyes by biking in a blizzard. Never thought of that. When you have a zero-sum market, a single shock can shatter the entire market. There are a lot of businesses that are no longer getting any attention. Anything that's considered a luxury good is in real trouble during a recession. That's the first thing to go. When people switch to survival mode, that's why right now people are suddenly realizing, this is a conversation they had. One of my mastermind members is a rancher and a farmer, and there's all these articles now. People are suddenly realizing, those people really matter. That stock boy that keeps the stuff on the shelves in the grocery store, he's about 100 times more important than your favorite actor when you're in a zombie apocalypse. Things that are luxuries don't matter anymore. Celebrities right now do not matter. They're an irrelevancy. Guess what? The reality is we have enough content. We can all watch reruns for a couple of years. We can survive. There's enough content out there that we don't really need that stuff. What we need changes. And so what people buy and what people shop for changes. So you don't want to be in a zero-sum market because it's going to get really tough in those places. What you want to be is in a market where there's a lot of opportunity, where the market is still growing or where the market is constantly reinventing itself. If your market is 18-year-olds, well, then there's always new people turning 18 every single year, right? So that's a market that's constantly refreshing. And even with bicycles, every year there are people that need a new bicycle. My kids, as they get older, right, as my daughter gets older, I keep having her buy her a new bicycle because she's the biggest. We don't have one for her. And where we live, it's very humid. So rust is basically impossible to resist because there's so much water in the air here. So bicycles don't last forever. We actually just repaired her bike chain. Not easy to do, but me and my wife did it because every once in a while I do something handy. And that's my one thing for the year. Our sixth test for recession-proof business is, is there a single point of failure? This one... I talk about a lot in a lot of different ways, but it's so important to think about. Is there a single thing that can happen that can eliminate this business? Now, at every business, it's impossible to have no single points of failure. Um, when I used to do work with clients, sometimes they would ask me for a key man clause, which was, what happens if I die? And I said, guys, if I die, I don't care what happens to your business. That's why people like to hire agencies instead of a person, so that if one person, if the person working for them has something happens or quits or has a disaster, or gets sick and can't work, the business keeps going. The service continues. That's one of the big advantages of agencies over individual consultants or freelancers. Examples are if you only have a single product, if you only have a single product type, if you only have a single traffic source. For a long time, 95% of my traffic and energy went directly into Amazon. All of my customers, everyone found me. If you found me more than a year or two ago, the odds are you found me through searching or through an Amazon category. That's no longer the case because I got paranoid about that single point of failure. And now the odds are I actually don't know. I can't predict how you found me because there's about seven or eight active ways that I'm introducing new people to my content. And that's going to grow to eight to 12 over the next 12 months because I don't want a single point of failure. So if one thing collapses, an example of that is this podcast. I didn't record a new episode for almost three years because of my eyes. And it really annoyed me because I love, actually probably my favorite part of this business is a podcast. I love doing these episodes. I love putting out this content, but all of these things conspired against me, a medical thing. And so that dropped to the wayside. And so if that had been my only way of getting new customers or people finding me, then I would have been in big trouble. And I've seen this happen to people and I've seen this happen to really big businesses when they have one way of getting their customers or when they only have a single customer. I used to watch this television show where a billionaire who owned like casinos and hotels and restaurants all over the country. This guy was amazing. 
And he would go to people and say, I want to buy this much from you. And they would go, well, and he goes, how much business do you last year? He goes, well, if I buy from you, then I become 70% of your business. I won't do that deal because I become your single point of vulnerability. I need you to diversify. So if my order shrinks, you don't go out of business. So if I go from spending a million dollars a year to $700,000 a year with you, you guys can maintain it. I need you guys to have more of a bulwark for scalability, both to protect you and to protect me. It's the reason this guy's a billionaire. Very savvy. Very, very savvy. I have seen so many businesses suffer from a single point of failure. The reason I know that my business can survive, the reason I'm not worried, is that I have the ability to pivot into danger. What I have is an adaptable business. If you plan for the worst, if you go, okay, bad things might happen, what will I do when they happen? And you plan in advance, then when they do happen, you don't get crushed. You survive, you thrive, you have the ability to pivot, you have the ability to grow. An example of this is this year I'm massively focusing on giving away content and growing my audience because focusing on that means even if everything drops, what people spend drops, what people can afford drops, what people have access to as far as resources drops by 90%, I just have to 10x my audience and my revenue stays flat. And then when the economy goes back up, I'll get pulled up like a rocket ship. So yes, this is the year of giving because I'm meeting you where you're at, but also it's part of a long-term strategy. It's part of the adaptability of my business. So you have to look at your business and say, does this have the ability to overcome these six tests? Can I survive the time investment, the financial investment, the complexity, the competition, the zero sum, the single point of failure tests? And sometimes the answer is to modify your business, to add. If you have a single point of failure, if you go, oh, you know what? I only get traffic from a Facebook page, find a second source of traffic. I only have one product, build a second product. I only have one customer type, spread your product line to open up to another customer type. These are the things you can do to build a recession-proof business. And I absolutely encourage you to look at what you're doing, what you're investing time in, and say, is this something that can do really well? So many of my followers are fiction authors and they are struggling. There's nothing wrong with being a fiction author. I read a lot of fiction. I actually just started reading a new series a couple of days ago about an urban detective that I've, I've ignored for years because I hate the covers. The covers look so cheesy and the books are so good. They're so Raymond Chandler, who's the one of the greatest detective noir authors of all time. I've read all of his books many, many years ago, so I'm always looking for more content. It's hard to have good detective mysteries. Far too many of the series that I get into with detectives turn into the detectives just always getting into fights, whether it's a gunfight or a magical fight. A lot of the authors that I like run out of mystery ideas, and that's what they start doing. But good mysteries, yes, I love them. But if your only plan or your only source of traffic is from a single strategy, then you need to rethink your business plan. You need to go, wait, I need at least 10 ideas that I can test for how I can find readers in the hopes that two or three of them work out. You don't expect every test to work. That's the difference between building recession-proof business and a brittle business that's going to get shattered the next time the economy shifts. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Serve No Master. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss another episode. We'll be back next Tuesday with more tips and tactics on how to escape that rat race. Head over to servenomaster.com forward slash podcasts now for your chance to win a free copy of Jonathan's bestseller, Serve No Master. All you have to do is leave a five-star review of this podcast. See you Tuesday.